I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Welcome to another episode of Ake Women. The women on our podcasts have not only broken barriers, but as role models, they inspire a whole generation of diaspora women, showing where there's a will, there's a way. Our guest today set her sights on shattering yet another glass ceiling. Reshma Patel became the first Indian American seeking office as controller of New York City. Many listeners will identify with their South Asian immigrant parents cajoling them to pursue medicine. Reshma decided to become a different type of doctor, one who manages fiscal health. As a child of immigrants who rose from poverty, Reshma understood the need to stretch out that last penny. After graduating from MIT, she began a two-decade-long public finance career of which the last eight have been spent as financial advisor to New York City and other city governments. Let's hear more on how this savvy finance whiz thinks her skills can save cities. Hi, Reshma, and welcome to our podcast. Hi, Monica. Thank you for inviting me today. How old were you when you moved to the U.S. from Gujarat and what prompted your parents' decision to move? I was a little over a year old when I moved to the U.S. from Gujarat. My dad came here for graduate studies and he had come here first and then my mother and I followed. And what are your earliest memories of those days? I know the stories that my parents tell me and my mother telling me about the entire plane ride. She had flown through Paris at that time to get to the United States and how I was just crying the whole time. (laughs) Um, So I don't remember that much because I was quite young. I think my earliest memories are of when I was three, I distinctly remember my sister being born in this country. How did affordable housing, daily struggles, and your mom's union job shape your own beliefs? We've all heard this story. I came here with $8 in my pocket because at that time, people weren't allowed to bring more than that with them in terms of foreign reserves and cash. My dad was in graduate school and supporting a family. So we lived in an apartment that was a part of an affordable housing complex. Initially, when my mom came to this country, she wasn't working, but eventually she did get a job in a factory that made books. The town that I grew up in was Lowell, Massachusetts, which had a long history of being a mill town. Those mills that used to be cotton mills were changed into paper mills. My mom worked at a company called Courier Corporation for many years. They were a union company and often they would strike and people would walk the picket line for better wages and better working conditions. Wow. 
How many years did you live in Lowell? My whole life until I was 18. Are your parents still there? Yeah, my parents still live there. When I was eight, they bought a house and um, they still live in that house. Any lessons you imbibed as your parents began climbing the financial ladder? My parents worked very hard. My dad used to go to grad school and work two jobs. So, you know, being mindful of how you spend your money and doing the right things in terms of when you're ready to buy a house or when you're investing. Those are lessons that I learned from my family. And thinking about community as well, because it was about not only supporting your family, but supporting a family back home and helping others in your community as well. Do you have any stories to tell of how your parents were helping friends and family and things like that? As a lot of immigrants do, they would send money back to my grandparents as well as to help out their siblings. Eventually, my parents became U.S. citizens, and then our whole family ended up coming to the United States. So all my parents' siblings now live here. When they came initially, they would stay with us. Once they got a foothold here, they got a job or were able to get their own homes, they would move. Even before the relatives started coming, there was always friends, people from India. If anybody was coming from there, they would always stay with us. So being a part of a community and helping people was something that you just started doing when you were a very young girl. I think that comes from... Being an immigrant in this country, a lot of immigrant communities help those from your own community. Also, my particular community, no one is a stranger to the last name Patel. We have agrarian roots and you come from villages and farming culture and you always bring the village with you wherever you go. I know that I'm a Patel and a yes. lot of my family in this country have come the same way. Mattresses on the floor, everybody in the same room, everybody cooking, but you just learn to live like that and make the best of whatever your circumstances are. How large was your family? My dad, uh, there's seven brothers and sisters, and he's the oldest. My mom, there are four siblings. Not only my parents' siblings, but on my father's side, even my father's first cousins have come to this country, and my grandparents had come here. It's been two years since my grandmother passed away, but she was here, and even all her siblings ended up eventually coming to the U.S. Do you meet often as a family? Yeah. On my father's side of the family, everybody actually still lives in Lowell, Massachusetts, within a short distance of my parents. Some of my mother's siblings are also in Massachusetts. A few are in upstate New York. So people do meet often. Any one large family gathering would mean that we have almost 100 people getting together. I completely resonate. We have 135 immediate family members in the United States and Canada. Anybody else in your family, your cousins, maybe uncles, aunts, who have also decided to get into public service, maybe engaging with communities, civic engagement, volunteering? Most members of my family are actually very civically engaged, even if that wasn't something that they set off to be. My dad has always been interested in politics. That was our conversation every evening when we would have dinner and watch the news together. I was working on campaigns before I was old enough to vote. I would go vote with my parents. And my dad always engaged with our local elected officials. Often when we needed to get a visa for someone to come to this country, you would call up your local congressperson and be like, can you help me? Back in those days, immigration rules weren't as tight and it used to actually work and help. It was also just advocating for other types of issues that were important in our neighborhood, our communities, and being involved. My father has always been involved. My sister, who is a surgeon, is very politically engaged. I have several cousins who are also. It's interesting to me because it's not something that we sat down and said, okay, this is what we're going to do, but it is something that we've just gravitated towards. Your sister's a surgeon. She followed that desi route of doctor, lawyer, engineer. You decided not to do that. How did your parents take your decision? 
as a good Indian child growing up, I was always focused on math and science and did science fairs and math Olympiads and ended up going to MIT. But frankly, I always knew that I wanted to study economics and political science. My parents chose to live in Massachusetts and every weekend we would actually go to Cambridge, Massachusetts. We would drive by MIT and Harvard and it would be like, oh, someday you're going to go to school here. My sister ended up going to Harvard. I didn't actually get into Harvard. If I had, I would have maybe gone there. (laughs) So really the immigrant dream. Particularly my father's dream because he's a chemical engineer. So for him, actually, MIT was the school to go to, not Harvard. And obviously he would have loved if I had become a chemical engineer or some other type of engineer like himself, but they've always been very supportive of what I've wanted to do and let me choose my path. My sister was an anthropology major and wasn't sure what she was going to do and eventually chose medicine as her own decision, as opposed to feeling pressure from family. That's unusual because that's not what you hear from many other Desi kids. So how did that actually help you make your decisions? When was the aha moment that this is what I'm going to do? I've not been someone who thought, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing in 10 years or 20 years. When I graduated from college, I was thinking of law school or public policies. I was president of my senior class at MIT. And one of the things I had to do was organize a career fair. And while I wasn't looking for a job, I met somebody who worked in public finance in New York City. And he's like, oh, with your interest, I think you would be perfect for this job. Come to New York, come meet our team. I ended up taking that job thinking I would live in New York for two years and then go back to Massachusetts go to grad school, do something different. But I came to New York and I fell in love with the city, its diversity, its culture, and could just never leave. Once I started working, you think you're going to stop in two years, but there's always a promotion or a raise or something that keeps you from leaving too. Did you have any struggles settling in as an immigrant family in Lowell initially? And is that why New York was such a breath of fresh air for you? Had you asked me growing up if I felt different or I didn't belong, I would not have said that, right? But once I moved to New York, I realized that I had found a place that I belonged, which is very different than how I felt my whole life. Lowell is actually known as a town of immigrants who had come to work in its mills. Irish immigrants had come to work in the canals. It prides itself as an immigrant town. But when my family was there, there weren't that many from India or Asia or even Latin America. It was primarily immigrants of European descent. Now that's changed. Lowell has become a city where there's immigrants from Asia, from India, from Africa, and from South America as well. Growing up, we assimilated to the point that I even celebrated all the Christian holidays. It was a primarily Catholic community, and we would go to midnight mass on Christmas Eve and do all the things that everybody else did in the community to fit in. I was perfectly happy doing that and perfectly happy as a child. But once I moved to New York and met so many other people of different cultures, not part of the mainstream culture, I realized that's the environment I like to be in, this multicultural experience of so many different traditions. Any valuable lessons you learned at MIT other than your curriculum work that you hadn't picked up as an immigrant in a small town in Massachusetts? There's so many things because outside of the classroom, the friendships that you make and the people you meet and you learn from is an incredible experience. Any stories that you could share? I ended up living on a floor where there were people of many different religious groups. The person who had the dorm room right next to me was from the Jewish tradition who followed the rules of the Sabbath Friday night to Saturday, lights off and couldn't touch the elevator button and stuff. There was 
a woman from India who was a strict vegetarian and she would want to keep her food separate. There was a Pakistani woman who wore a head covering and very deeply involved in the Muslim tradition. And then there were several people who are from Protestant faiths. There were two Mormons. There are people following Baptist traditions. And we all shared a kitchen together and we all learned to live together and learn from each other. I'm still friends with them now at a time in our country and in the world where there seems to be a lot of hatred and a lot of division. That was an amazing learning experience because I wasn't going to meet people of so many of those traditions I never had before and haven't actually since then as well. It was like melting pot, a little microcosm of life. I grew up in India. Everybody's so homogeneous. And when I moved here, I met all sorts of people. It really expanded my view and how I approach life. Most Desi parents expect their children to study hard, get a good job, and then get married. What did your parents expect from you and your sibling? And what choices have you and your sister made apart from career choices? Studying hard and working hard were definitely the pillars of what I was taught as a child, especially the studying hard, right? Because the working hard, that just came naturally. I spent my youth working 80 to 100 hour weeks. My sister has worked harder than me as a surgeon. Hard work was definitely instilled in us. Every evening we would have dinner, we would be watching news and really taught that we could do anything we wanted. I didn't realize how unusual this was until I got much older. We would watch the Olympics. I was in no way a good athlete. I was on a swim team, but I wasn't great. But my dad would be like, someday you're going to be in the Olympics on the swim team. We would watch the Nobel Prizes being handed out. And he'd be like, maybe someday you'll win a Nobel Prize. Or like, maybe someday you'll be president. It was always shooting for the stars. We never had this conversation about, okay, so when you get married or you need to learn how to cook and clean and have a family. My sister has gotten married, has had children. I have not. She happened to meet someone and fall in love and it worked out for her and it didn't work out for me. So Reshma Patel hasn't met anyone and fallen in love yet or you're not looking. My advice for women who are younger would be that it is something you do need to focus on, which I did not focus on, if you know that's what you want. But at the same time, it's not something you find. Life can still be wonderful. Female friendships have given me so much strength and companionship and happiness. Being a Masi, a Bua is just amazing. You get to be a part of children's lives and you form a really beautiful bond with them. Did you have any mentor? I have my teachers in my schools I really admired and they definitely inspired me. I particularly had one history teacher who taught my AP history class in high school who really was a tremendous influence on what I've done in life and being an activist. She herself had done that. In the workplace, several people have been very supportive of my career and helped me. I chose to leave public finance several years ago, but when I decided to run for New York City Comptroller, people I hadn't talked to in a while from my work days reached out to me and just been super supportive. Are you still in touch with these mentors of yours? And if you didn't have them, would it have made a huge difference in how you approached life later on? I think in my case, I was already fairly highly motivated. I think where the mentors help, especially in a corporate environment, you need people to be your advocate and really pushing for you and looking out for you. That's where people who are my mentors and my bosses and supervisors really help me out. When you first enter a work environment, and if you don't have anybody who's been through that same corporate experience, you don't realize that just working hard is not going to be enough. You need someone to really advocate for you. A lot of the work I've done as a volunteer and as being a mentor to young women, it's amazing to me how many are told that you can't do something. 
and how society tells them that, how families tell them that, and that lack of self-confidence, you know, keeps them from doing great things. We as a culture need to change that. Did you ever visit New York City as a kid and think one day I'm going to be living here? I never thought I would live in New York City, but when we were kids, it was hard to get Indian groceries in Massachusetts. So we used to drive to New York. It would be like a van of several families. We would all get together, go to Jackson Heights, buy groceries, watch a Hindi film, and then come back to Massachusetts. My image of New York City was very different as a child compared to what ended up happening when I came to New York for the first time, which was once I met someone who offered me a job and said, why don't you come to New York and meet with a team? That is coming into lower Manhattan in a black car and going into this very fancy office building with people in fancy clothes and a very different experience, a life that I didn't know about until I encountered it. And what was your first job? Most of my professional career has been in public finance, and it was working as a public finance banker. For those who are not familiar with it, in the United States, most financings of infrastructure projects, which is building of schools, bridges, airports, are done through taxes and bond issuances. That's what I was working on, structuring those bond issues to help state and local governments fund these projects. When you gave up public finance, you gave it up to run for office. I had worked as a public finance banker. Then I went to be a financial advisor to New York City and other state and local governments as well. I often didn't have a long-term path, but my career just took me places. When I was working on a deal, I met someone at an investor conference who ran this small company. And he's like, why don't you come work for me? I ended up going to work for him for about eight years. Then I went back into banking again because a woman banker said, do you want to come join my team? I worked with her for many years. And I had been actually at Lehman Brothers in 08 when everything went down. That was an interesting experience. 08 really shaped me. Everything that happened that year made me realize that I needed to go back to my original passion, which was wanting to have a greater impact on community and society. So I ended up leaving the banking job in 2012 and spent two years traveling and taking a break after having worked for so long, literally, like I would leave one job and start the next job often on a weekend. Once I came back to New York after that travel, I serve on my local community board and the board of an arts organization called Dance NYC. I ended up becoming very involved in several nonprofits, which I had been volunteering for before, but then took on a board leadership role, in particular with Chaya Community Development Corporation, which is working with immigrant communities in Queens. I really started organizing in communities and supporting causes that I like and working as a consultant, doing work both in public finance, but other finance related economic development projects, making my own schedule and really having the ability to live life the way I wanted on my terms. Any incident that affected you deeply, something that finally made you decide that I'm going to run for public office? I had always been engaged politically and voted in every election One of the things that I realized in 2016, there was a lot of people saying they were very dissatisfied. What does government do for me? I never felt that way because I had always been involved. Not only did I vote, but if I had an issue, I would pick up the phone and call my local elected official. A lot of people weren't doing that. So I've spent a lot of time in the last four years going into different communities, speaking to them, registering people to vote, telling them why it's important to vote, why it's important to be an advocate for yourself. Because in New York City, in the United States in general, we have very low voter turnout. The communities that are the poorest in our city are the ones who have the lowest voter turnout. I realized that a lot of people just didn't even know what kind of services were available to them. 
that's what caused me to really run for office. I saw that the city is very large and there are lots of different voices that don't get heard in our city government. I decided to run to bring those voices to our city government. I chose to run for this role of controller because I also have the professional expertise given my work in finance and specifically public finance. And essentially the controller is the CFO of New York City. What is that unique skill that you bring to the office of controller, given that it's quite a cluttered field right now? I am the only person who's had this direct experience working with the controller's office as the financial advisor and really understanding the nuts and bolts of the office. And I also bring unique community voices because I've been involved in organizations that serve very different communities around this city, which I don't think any one of my competitors has done. How have you been received by people in New York? It's been really touching the number of people who reached out and said, I saw you or read about you. I want to volunteer. There's lots of these public forums where you're speaking and often I'll get a note afterwards saying, I heard you speak and this resonated with me. So that's been wonderful. I am a first-time candidate and there are five people in this race who have already run for office many times and have already been elected officials. It's a crowded field. So it's an uphill battle to get the recognition, but it's been great experience in getting feedback from communities. We're taping this before the elections. If you do win and you do become the Comptroller of New York City, what is the first thing you're going to tackle and what kind of plans do you have for the city? Our city has gone through so much. We were at the epicenter of the pandemic. Luckily, we are on an upward trend now and things are improving, but the economic fallout has been strong. 630,000 people lost their job. A third of our businesses shut down. My first priority is really to focus on our recovery. How do we get people back to work, create new jobs, and how do we help our struggling small businesses? I read somewhere that you declared an intention to run for president of the U.S., but a classmate said you couldn't do that since you're a girl. Of course, the real reason is that you weren't actually born in the U.S., but young girls today do have another reason to be hopeful. When I was in the fourth grade, somebody said, well, a girl can't be president. I never thought it was a possibility at that time. As an adult, to have a female president or vice president is just really exciting And super exciting that she's also a woman of color and multiracial and has roots in India. Have you ever met her and talked to her? And how has that been? I met her once at an event in Washington, D.C., organized by an Asian American group. She was wonderful. At that time, she was a senator and she was very friendly. We had a brief but nice conversation. What kind of advice would you give young South Asian girls wanting to pursue politics, girls or boys? It's an unprecedented time in the sense that so many South Asians are running for office now, both in New York and in other parts of the country. In New York, we haven't had a South Asian elected at all in city government, but we will have one this election cycle because there's just so many people running for the city council seat. I'm the only one running for a citywide seat. My advice to them would be, if it's something you are interested in, really pursue it. People often say, don't go into politics because it's so corrupt, but it's only when we have good people running that we can make change. Don't let that be the reason why you decide not to follow that path. Because unfortunately, going back to our conversation where lots of parents want their children to follow a certain career path, I think politics is definitely one that's not encouraged, especially in our communities, because there is this general perception that it's such a corrupt field, why would you want to go into that area? And you think that could also be because in India, it's such a corrupt field? Is it a corrupt field in the United States too? I think that perception comes from the experience of politics in India. 
I think in most of the communities of immigrants have come here, they left India thinking that it was a system they didn't want to be a part of because of the corruption. For them, politics has an especially negative connotation. That said, we have our own set of corruption issues here in this country, so I'm not going to just be passing judgment on India. What is the reason for young South Asians actually going into politics now and taking up community service and becoming more proactive? My generation growing up were the early wave of immigrants who came, put your nose down, study hard, work hard, and assimilate. I think that now, one, there is a larger number of South Asians, so it is okay to embrace your culture and your tradition and really advocate for your community. An attack on one community of immigrants is an attack on all of us. We can empathize with that because we've also had similar experiences in this country as them. It's important to remember that if it wasn't for the African-American community in this country, the civil rights movement, my parents couldn't immigrate here. It was because of the civil rights movement that people from non-European countries were even able to start coming to this country in large numbers. And that recognition and those alliances with other immigrant communities, with other communities of color is really, I think, what's led to this level of activism and interest. With your nephew and niece, do you see a difference between how they are growing up here and the way you were growing up? It's a very different experience. First of all, they're growing up with much more than we did. I think the longer you are in America and as life becomes more comfortable, the less hard you work in terms of whether it's studying hard or working hard. So my sister and I often be like, they just don't have the same level of motivation that we would have at their age, partially because they don't have to have it. At the same time, they're great kids who work hard, but it's just a different level of work ethic that's there. It's a millennial thing. They're not even millennials. They may even be too young to be Gen Z. They might be even another generation right now. It could be generational. Maybe it's not the second generation immigrant experience versus the first generation immigrant experience. It's also different in the sense that when we were growing up, until my relatives came here, we were just our nuclear family. Whereas my sister's kids have so much family around them. And that also makes a difference. As somebody who's come from India, how often have you gone back to visit? As a child growing up, we only had gone back to India three times. But as an adult, especially after living in New York, I've actually go to India quite often, almost every year. For the last decade, I've gone almost twice a year. In 2013, I actually spent eight months in India traveling and have seen most of the country. I love it and miss it dearly because it's been now over a year since I've been because of this pandemic. Any interesting things that you learned during your travels through India as a single South Asian girl? Many of my friends in New York will ask me, oh, how do you travel in India alone? I mean, you're older and single, and they perceive India as a country that's focused on marriage and where you have traditional roles for females. But my experience has been the opposite. I've been to all parts of the country almost now, except for the far ends. And I've met so many different women. Um, I spent three days with a friend's mother in her, who's in her 60s. And at the end of that trip, when she went to drop me off at the airport, she said to me, when I see young women like yourself, I think what my life could have been. Because she had done well in law school, but her father wanted her to get married. And so she did. Her whole life, she said, had been about her husband, her children, and now her grandchildren. Obviously, she loves them and she's had a good life. But she just wonders what her life could have been like had she had the freedom that I do. And I have so many other stories like this. I was at a hotel in Bangalore waiting for a taxi to pick me up with a friend. And a young woman just started 
who just started working there, um, start speaking with us. And as often as the case in India, people ask you, where is your husband, your children? And when you say no, they're like, oh, interesting. Um, the woman who's probably about 22 was like, can I get your phone number? She had just finished her hospitality studies and wanted to work and have a career and travel, but her father wanted her to get married. He didn't think that women could live their lives on their own. And so she wanted us to talk to her dad. And did you talk to her father? I did, and I think my friend did too. But it's hard to change a person's mind in a short time frame. What about women of that age in the United States who probably when they came here with $8 in their pocket had no choice but to work? How do they view you and your freedom compared to what their life was? If not your parents, do they hassle you about why aren't you married? My parents obviously would have liked to see me married, but I haven't felt the pressure to do it. Um, in my extended family, I have aunts who've gone to temples and prayed for me to get married, um, which is you know not atypical for Indians. But majority of the people in my family have been really supportive. Um, a happy life is really what they care about. And it's interesting because I haven't had that generation of women in this country telling me that they wish they had my life the way I've had in India. And perhaps those conversations don't happen as much in this country. I think in India, people tend to be more frank. As an attendant at the Marriott in New York City would never ask me if I was married and had children, but they will in Bangalore. I do that a lot. When I first came here from India, and I had to learn to be more diplomatic after living here for a few years. Um, the in- other interesting thing is that my primary circle um, in New York City is, um, you know, females who are single in their 30s and really focused on finding a partner and getting married. And each time you meet them for dinner or brunch, it's a story about the last bad online date they've had. Going to India, the conversation was different. It wasn't about wanting to get married, but it was about all these women who are being forced into marriages or not being able to make their own choices. And I wish my friends here could understand how lucky they are that they have this choice in life to choose their own path. Does Reshma Patel switch gears and relax ever? I really love fitness. Yoga, Pilates, and dance brings me a lot of pleasure in how I relax. Any other hobbies or activities that you do? Movies and travel? I love travel and have traveled extensively. For me, travel is about history and culture of different places. And so I like to go to off-the-beaten-path trips and be a traveler as opposed to just be someone who's on vacation is how I like to approach travel. I love music. I love to dance. What kind of dancing do you enjoy? Many different types. I actually love Bollywood dance. I love Bhangra. And I'm a Gujarati, so I love Gerba. Indian folk dances are definitely the thing that brings me the most joy. If there's like a Bollywood trivia night, I can beat anybody. What's been your favorite travel destination and why? One of my favorite places in the world is Cape Town, South Africa, because of the natural beauty. But also, it is such a cultural melting pot, too. The different traditions, the Cape Malay cuisine that comes. You have influences from India. As I mentioned before, I love India. As cliche as it might sound, because so many Westerners end up going to Rajasthan, but I've now been to Jaipur like five times. And no matter how often I go, I just love that city, the history, tradition and food, everything that you get there. The pink city, it is beautiful. Yeah. I have a rapid fire on for you. Are you ready? Yes. Favorite New York borough? I'm going to say Queens, just because the amount of different types of great food you get surpasses any of the other boroughs. The best thing about New York? It's diversity. Your favorite cuisine? Middle Eastern. Favorite childhood hobby? Swimming. Kids or pets? Kids. New York summers or fall? 
New York summers, I like really warm weather. Heels or flats? Heels. Favorite Bollywood movie? Silsila. Old school. Yeah. <laughs> and favorite beverage? Diet Coke. Favorite Garba song? There was one song that I remember singing as a child, actually, which is Tame Ek Var Mar Var Jao Jore. Tame Ek Var Mar Var Jao Jore. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't hear it at Garbas anymore, but I always just remember that song. Because right now it's all about disco dandia, so yes, they don't yes. play the old traditional ones. Reshma, it was fantastic talking to you and getting an insight on how South Asians can also enter politics. On behalf of my colleague, Medha Jai Shankar and me, thank you for taking time to speak with Ek Women. For all our listeners, you can follow our podcast on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn on Ek Women Global. Thank you so much, Monica and Ek Woman for inviting me today. This was wonderful.